From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. That's it. We are in the middle of uh, Joseph. The story of Joseph today is um, the story of uh, Joseph going to Pharaoh. Um, now, if you've never seen uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, you, you can actually pick it up online. There's pieces of it at, on YouTube. Donny Osmond plays Joseph, uh, and Donny Osmond is one of my wife's favorite um, singers because there used to be a thing called the Donny Marie Show back in the 70s, uh, but he resurfaced again uh, to play the part of Joseph in this amazing musical. Uh, and if you've never seen it, you can pick it up on YouTube, but uh, there's a song called The Song of the King, uh, and uh, where Joseph is brought before the king um, I'll just give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a piece of it. Oh, they were right, they were golden bunch of guests right behind them. There were seven other ears that were tattered and torn off. So you have, uh, so, uh, well, I'll just read the story and then I'll tell you what happens. So we're just going to go right into Pharaoh's dream. Um, this is now, uh, Joseph... Jo Joseph is in prison. Uh, they brought in the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph predicted that the, that the baker would be killed, the cupbearer would go back to the king. Well, the cupbearer did go back to the king, the baker was killed. Uh, Joseph tells the cupbearer, when you see Pharaoh, tell him about me in prison. Cupbearer goes to Pharaoh, nothing. So Joseph is stuck in prison. Uh, the cupbearer is not um, fighting for him. Nobody's fighting for him. He's just stuck in prison. Um, and he's stuck in prison for a long time. That's where we pick up the story. So when two full years had passed, chapter 41, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows, and then Pharaoh woke up. So um, this is, so Pharaoh's having a bad dream, and the dream is, is that there were seven fat cows that came out of the Nile, and then there were seven uh, gaunt cows that came out of the Nile. Um, and uh, so Pharaoh woke up from this dream. He's like, what does this dream mean? Well, the dream goes on. Um, so we'll go back and see. Verse 5. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads, and then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Ha, huh, finally. Pharaoh was once again angry with his servants, and he uh, uh, imprisoned me. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants. 
And he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. And each of us had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. And now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the <clears throat> captain of the guard. We told him our dreams. And he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was impaled. <clears throat> so finally, the cupbearer, after two years, remembers Joseph in prison and tells Pharaoh, he says, nobody, your magicians can't tell you the meaning of this dream, but we know a guy named Joseph. Um, and he uh, interpreted the dream before. And so uh, one last part, Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And this is where, uh, this is in the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> If you've never seen the musical, um, Joseph is is dragged, uh, kicking and screaming to Pharaoh, and he's expecting Pharaoh to be this mean guy, and Pharaoh turns out to be Elvis, and he sings a song about his dreams, uh, and it is a great thing. We, um, when we lived in Arvada, Jennifer and I, we didn't live in Arvada, we lived in Littleton, but the Arvada Community Center, for maybe five or six years, once a year, would do Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And the guy that played Joseph was just absolutely amazing singer. Um, and we would go see this. Uh, I think we saw it five times, four times, five times. Uh, and it's just, and we, it was the same guy that played it. And this, I just, I know people think that the best musical of Andrew Lloyd Webber is maybe Caps or Cats or Phantom of the Opera. You are wrong. The best musical of Andrew Lloyd Webber, bar none, is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It is the best. And it is available. Uh, you can watch it um, probably on Netflix, probably on Amazon Prime. But if you're on YouTube, you can see a whole bunch of bits and pieces of it. You probably can see the whole thing of it um, if you string together all the bits and pieces that it that are. Um, but it is so good. And uh, it it I think what happened is that Andrew Lloyd Webber um, wrote this as a children's musical back in the 70s. And then he was thinking about it and, you know, contemplating each song and like, how could I beef up each song? And he does. He takes each song and puts it in a style that really fits the song and pieces it together as a musical that is just stunning and fantastic. And I tell you, it's his best musical. Um, and it is really, really uh, worth watching if you've never seen it and if it ever comes close to you uh, or if it's even ever on Broadway it might be worth you know flying to New York to see or driving to New York to see but it is it is just so good it is a good musical it's a feel-good musical um, 
So anyway, uh, wanted to share that with you because uh, if you haven't ever seen it, you just got to see it. And it's worth today or tomorrow, maybe, you know, loading up a couple of the songs on YouTube or loading up all the songs on YouTube. The whole thing is a musical. I don't know if there's any talking in the whole thing. I can't remember. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, Joseph goes before Pharaoh, but the real Pharaoh, Joseph was a little bit nervous about. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, so in verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear the dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I can't do it, but the God who is with me, the God, uh, God will give me the answer that Pharaoh desires. So right away, we see that Joseph doesn't say, I can do this, uh, it's all me, but it's God working through me. <clears throat> and honestly, folks, that if you can have an attitude like Joseph, you will be blessed your whole entire life because the, the, there's two things that are fighting inside your body. One is, um, is the ability to have God's Holy Spirit live in you and help you survive the battles of life because he will. When you become in the kingdom, Jesus has won the war for you, uh, but there's still battles and the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you and helps you fight the battles in life. And so the first thing you have to cling to is that the Holy Spirit is living in your life like he was living in Joseph. Um, and cling to that and know that God is with you and that he's going to help you in all the battles no matter how hard it is, no matter how tough it is, God is with you. But the second thing you have to cling to, which is equally important, is to recognize that the power in your life is not you, that it is God. To give you a sense of humility, to give you a sense of love and compassion to the world around you, to kind of wipe away your prejudices and your um, anger and your, you know, your ego and uh, the things that prevent you from, from being open and honest and transparent with yourself about where the, where the power comes from. And Joseph had both of these living inside him. And I'm convinced that when you are in the kingdom, you know the Holy Spirit is working in you and you, you treat that presence of God in you with uh, humility and, uh, and love and compassion for fellow men and and I, I don't want to say deny your ego, but um, man, maybe, you know, the, the ego is what kills us, right? The ego is all about me, me, me. Uh, what Luther said is that the problem with man is that he's always focused in on himself. It's curvatus in se. He's focused in on himself. And um, when, we can, when we can take that focus away from ourselves and put it into the world around us, when you have both those forces living in your life, you will live the abundant life that God has for you. That is all I have to say. Those are the only two things that you need to recognize to have the most abundant life. And you can be imprisoned like Joseph. You can be imprisoned from the things around you. You can be imprisoned because of coronavirus. You can be imprisoned because of uh, of relationships, you can be imprisoned because of finances, you can be imprisoned because of sickness, the disease, illness, and all that. But if you know that God's dwelling in you and you live with that indwelling God in you with um, 
with the denial of self and ego and just a love for your fellow man, you will live the most abundant, wonderful life and God can do amazing things through you. God can't do amazing things through you if you if you turn around and then turn it in on yourself. No, but once once you've matured to see that everything, every gift, every uh, 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 every spiritual gift, every emotional gift, every financial gift, every um, physical gift, everything that you have in your life, if you can see that all that is a gift from God and you're just going to use it to His service and love the world around you, you there you're a, a God is unstoppable through you. And God's unstoppable through his church uh, as God becomes unstoppable through Joseph. So Joseph comes to Pharaoh uh, and says to him, uh, I cannot, it's just stark, right? Verse 16, I cannot interpret your dream. Pharaoh must have been like, oh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Let's go on. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river there came seven fat cows. No. When out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. That's a little bit of difference. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And then Pharaoh goes on because he has another part of the dream. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain full of good growing up on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. So, um, <clears throat> Pharaoh is standing, telling this dream to Joseph. He says, I got the cows, I got the grains, you know, and the, the, the thin cows ate the fat cows. It didn't seem to do anything. The healthy grains were eaten by the, the thin, ugly grains. Nothing seemed to happen. None of my magicians can tell me what this dream means. And, and Pharaoh is pleading with Joseph, um, can you tell me uh, what this dream means? And I'm not entirely sure why uh, God blessed Joseph and his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather with the ability to interpret dreams but to have these deep connections with God, but Joseph did. Now, as a sidebar, um, right after the time of Jesus, there was a group of men, they were called the Desert Fathers, and they went into Egypt, uh, and they were uh, Christians. They were early, uh, they were called the Desert Fathers. They were, they were Christians, but what they did was they went out into the wilderness, and they spent their whole entire day in prayer, in communion with God. Um, they knew the stories of Jesus. They knew everything that had been told to them about Jesus. They knew the life of Jesus. And they would simply go out and spend time in meditation and prayer with God. And uh, these men were so close and connected with God that people from all around would come around and sit down and do similar things. Tell them what's going on in their life. And these dwelling father, the desert fathers would then... Um, you know, interpret dreams, heal people, do all kinds of... Now, this was 
100 to 300 AD. Um, the church was still being persecuted in the in the early you know part of the church. So this this is before Constantine and the early church um, being coming a, a part of becoming a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. So so you had to be very very careful if you were going to be a uh, follower of Jesus Christ. And so you weren't necessarily always overtly outward Christian. Um, there would be worship on Sunday morning in house churches, but it was very confined. It was secretive. Um, but these desert fathers were out there and they and people would come from all around to talk to the desert fathers. They're, they're the proto-monks. Eventually the desert fathers turned into monks, but it's, it's not in the monks that we know today or the monks we knew of the 15th, 16th, 17th century. These are, these are men that spent their whole entire life um, they weren't interpreting, you know, they weren't scribing scriptures or that sort of thing. They were just simply in the presence of God. And my feeling is that Joseph was a desert father. Joseph in prison, it could have destroyed him. He could have been in ang- burning in anger because of his brothers and what they did to him. Burning in anger with God because God had promised him that, uh, you know, his brothers would bow down before him. And yet... It appears by every conceivable part of this story that Joseph remained very, very close to God in the midst of a horrible situation. He used his prison time to sharpen and hone his skills and his love for God uh, and and the presence of God in his life, the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in his life. And, um, and Joseph then, when he's brought before Pharaoh, has no fear before Pharaoh. Uh, and he listens to Pharaoh's dream. And because God lives and indwells within Joseph, um, we get to the next part of this. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are the seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all of the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. There you have it. Now, I mean, if God had told me this dream or Pharaoh had told me this dream, I wouldn't have been able to interpret it. I'm not... Uh, I wish I could interpret dreams because <laughs> my wife has a lot of them. I don't dream. I, I dream so infrequently. I, maybe one or two times a year, I'll have a dream. Um, yeah, Jennifer has a dream almost every night. Uh, and um, I'm, just, I'm just not blessed that way. Every once in a while I have a dream and they're bizarre and I, and I hardly remember them. And I think it's part of it is because I just wake up so early. I never exist in that state where you're remembering your dream I go to bed hard and I wake up, uh, you know, afresh and I don't go back to sleep. Um, and maybe that's why I'm, and you know, nobody knows 
the scientists are trying to figure out why we dream and all that sort of thing. Um, and at one level, they're saying uh, that dreams, the latest I've heard about dreams is that what it is, is it's your mind going through and purging duplicate. It's like cleaning out the hard drive. Uh, you probably don't. Your computer every once in a while will go out and give up, get and clean up fragments of bits of pieces of information that exist on your computer and wipe them out. It's called a, a hard drive clean. And I think the same thing happens in your brain in dreams. That So example, you get up and you go to work and you drive on that road and then you get to work. And this is so habitual in your life that you don't need to remember every single time that you woke up and drove to work. It's almost like you don't need to do that. So your body kind of takes and purges some of those memories and changes it unless there was something significant that happened. You know that you went to work, you got in the car and you drove, but but your body is constantly saying, I need to keep these memories, but I don't need to keep these memories. And it's constantly um, modifying your brain to which memories to remember and which memories not to remember. Because your brain has the amazing capacity to memorize stuff, but um, it can't memorize every little bit. It, it cannot memorize every moment in your life. And so some scientists have said that the purpose of a dream is kind of finding similar patterns of things that happened in your life and, and turning it into one pattern that you know. So instead of remembering you know, that whole thing, you remember just the pieces that changed from that whole thing. So and as you're a kid, everything's new. You remember everything. Because every new experience up until you're five or seven years old is a new experience. But you're, by the time you're my age, you know, I get up, I go to work, I do the same things over and over again. So at the end of the day, my, I'm, my body is comparing that day against, you know, 5,000 days before it. Uh, and so um, that's, that's what scientists are now saying what happens, you know, and what happens in your dreams. And some people wake up in the middle of that and so they remember their dreams. But... Uh, God obviously works through dreams. I mean, he works through Pharaoh's dream. He worked through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people who dreamed. Uh, there were New Testament people that dreamed. There was Dreaming has been a part of a way that God can send messages to people. Uh, I think you have to be very, very careful about dreams um, because uh, the interpretation of dreams has to be done by somebody who's very connected with God, like a desert father. And I don't know if we even have people like that anymore. I mean, who do we have today that wakes up in the morning and spends their whole time in, in communion with God um, that you could go to and say, hey, I have a dream, and then they would be able to do that? I don't know. We are so busy in our life. Even, even monks today, um, I don't know if any of them just spend time in communion with God. 24-7. So I don't know if we have people that can interpret dreams. And I don't know if God speaks to people in dreams today. Um, but God speaks, you know, in the, it does say in Hebrews 1, in the olden times God spoke through his prophets, but in these latter days God speaks through his son. So in the old olden days, in the, before Jesus, God spoke directly to certain prophets and gave them the words to, uh, He's speaking through Joseph. You know, there's certain people that he's, he picks and he speaks through that, you know, that bring the words of God into the community. After Jesus, then he spoke through Jesus. And Jesus is the definitive word of God. 
and that's all then documented in the in the Holy Bible. But you know, the question is, does God still speak through dreams or through um, impressions in people's lives? And the early church felt absolutely there was no question about it. But you have to have in the early church, you have to have people that can help you interpret these these things from God. Um, and it has to be then um, normalized through Scripture. I mean, is what God telling you in agreement with Scripture? And if it is, great. If it's not in agreement with Scripture, that's a problem because of Hebrews 1, that in his latter days, God speaks through his Son. His, God's words that he spoke through Jesus are the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And so everything else uh, has to agree with what Jesus said. But other things could be open to interpretation. But you have to agree with what Jesus, you have to agree with God's word. There's no question that you have to agree with God's word. And if it doesn't agree with God's word, throw it out because it's not, it's not true. But if it agrees with God's word, that's open up to debate. So anyway, um, that's a long foray into whether or not God speaks to do today. But God definitely spoke through Joseph. Um, and Joseph tells him, this is the meaning of your dream. They're the same thing. You can have seven years of bumper crops, and then you can have seven years of famine. And um, what would you have done differently if in 2001, uh, God had said between 2001 and 2007, you're going to have an abundance of economy, you know, GDP is going to increase, the economy is going to increase, life is going to be good. Um, all this stuff is going to be great. But then in 2007, there's going to be a market crash because of these mortgage-backed securities, uh, and we're going to have seven years where people are going to struggle mightily because of that. What would you have done differently? What would you have not purchased? What, what things would you have purchased differently? What, what things with your family would you have done differently? I mean, if, if you were given this news back in 2001, or 2000, 2001, what would you have done differently? And um, the answer is probably we would have done a whole lot of things differently because we never, our brain always thinks that, you know, we're, that life is always going to be kind of like what it is today. Um, we're just wired that way. So if the economy is going well and everything's going well, we have a tendency to say it's always going to go on that way. It is um, the prudent person that in the good times socks away, you know, resources so that when the lean times happen, you know, they're not starving. And, you know, we don't starve in the United States. I'm sorry. There are very few people, if any, that starve in the United States. If anything, most of the people in the United States could go two, three, five months without eating a thing and just be just fine. Um, but there, that doesn't mean that we don't have famines uh, of all sorts of things. Families of famines of relationship, famines of um, of uh, you know education, famines of, of being able to be in each other's presence. I mean, right now we're in a famine of this pandemic, and um, you know, praise God, we have this ability to talk. But uh, but we have never experienced a famine like a food famine. And then, believe it or not, there's still places around the world that have food famines. It's, and f growing food is, is we have the technology to grow all the food we need. Wells, water, fertilizer, seed, all that stuff. There isn't a place in the world we can't grow food. If we could just train people 
and give them the resources so that they could grow the food. Um, we have conquered food growth. So if there's famine anywhere in the world, it's not because of technology. It is, and I'm convinced of this, it's because of government. It's because of, in the places of the world where there is famine, it's because the people that are in charge are so entrenched with their uh, wealth and their power that they don't see the famines that happen around them. Uh, and even if the United States or any you know, first world country gives food uh, to those countries, it doesn't work its way down to the people who really need it, who are very starving. And th this is true. I'll just tell you that I'll close with this. We think that government is the solution to every problem. But if there's famine anywhere around the world, who is, who is at the forefront of, of solving this problem? And my friends, it's not governments. It's not even our government. It truly is agencies, Christian agencies, that have a love for the people of the world around them that are risking their life to get food and products and technology into these countries, bypassing the governmental authorities under the protection of God, uh, maybe under the guise of uh, you know Christian charitable aid. I mean, Christians at their finest are not a threat to governments because they're simply going in and loving people. The government of the United States goes into another country and all of a sudden red flags go up in these other countries. What does the United States want? Or what does Great Britain want? Or what does India want? I mean, all these things. But a church can go in under the radar and say, we're just here, we're just here to solve this problem. We have no other aim or goal except to solve the hunger problem that's in this country. And sometimes a king or a dynasty or an oligarchy or whatever will say, fine, you can come in and help because my people are hurting. Um, but uh, we can, the church can do things that governmental agencies can't do. And I have said this uh, my whole life. The solution to the world's problems is not science and technology. They help. Science, technologies, governments help. But honestly, the only solution to the world's problems are people like Joseph who understand that God is working through them. They throw out the ego and they say, God, let me be your hands and feet. Let me go to the places that nobody else can go and be your love. Um, and that's even in, in American society, right? All the people that are hurting American society and they're all cautious about the church. And they should be. There are a lot of churches that are just in it for the money. Um, a lot of Christians that are in it for power, let me put it that way. But the true church, the true ch Christian church on earth isn't in it for the money. It's not in it for the power. It's not in it for the prestige. They're in it to be the hands and feet of God in the world around them. And when those churches exist, when those people, when those Christians exist, the church is unstoppable, like Joseph. All right, I think we'll end it there because uh, we'll get into, so we're ending on um, verse 32. We'll pick it up on verse 33, all right? So let's quickly close in prayer. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for the beautiful weather last night, the beautiful weather this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to put away ourself and be filled with you so much that we can't help but share you with the world around us. We pray this in your son's Jesus' name.